You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about a new... uh Kindle single just dropped this week. It's called Mussolini's Arctic Airship. It's written by Eva Holland. Uh, Eva is a friend of the show. She's a contributing editor at Longform, fantastic writer, and uh, she's been working on this one for a while. So go check it out. Mussolini's Arctic Airship, Kindle single, out now. Here is the show. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with my co-host, Max Linsky. How are you, sir? We're both from Longform. Evan Ratliff, who is uh, absent, but we've left an open chair for him, uh, is uh, out this week. Um, playing that ultimate. Playing a little ultimate. We uh, we want to get this, uh, this episode out quickly because it's about a story that came out in the Times Magazine last week. My guest is Jay Caspian Kang, who long, long-time listeners show... Well, uh, remember from episode 35. 35? Yeah. Wow. When I told Jay that it had been uh, uh, four and a half years since he'd been on the show, he, his prediction was that it had been about a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's weird because I feel like Jay has lived like whole journalistic lives since then. He has lived uh, many journalistic lives. He was one of the people who helped get Grantland off the ground. Um, that's what we talked about the last time he was on the show. Since then, he's worked for NewYorker.com, and then he basically the whole time has been doing features for New York Times Magazine, and he is also a correspondent for Vice News Tonight uh, on your TV set. But why'd you have him back now? What was the uh, um, New York he Times wrote story? a story for the Times Magazine? Uh, I think it's called "Not My Brothers." Um, it's about a hazing death at a Asian American fraternity from Baruch College, but it's also about. Asian American identity. Uh, it's an unusual piece for the Times Magazine in, in how much of uh, the writer's personal experiences are and, and, and discussion of identity. I thought it was great. It's definitely resonated very strongly with people like the long form email box yeah. has gotten several emails with a request to forward them to Jay. And when I see something like that, I'm always interested in talking to someone about it. So he generously um, volunteered to come in here and get this up now. Uh, I'm excited for this one. I'm also excited for Labor Day weekend. Oh, yeah. Because I'm going to the Decatur Book Festival with Evan. We're going to talk to uh, a whole slew of authors that we are bringing to the Decatur Book Festival along with MailChimp. We've uh, been reading these books all summer with the good people at MailChimp. Give me an example. 
Uh, let's see. How many books have you read this summer, Max? <laughs> I've read too many books. I've been uh, not doing other things I should be doing. I'm really excited. Heather Haverleski is going to be there. I'm going to do like an interview with Heather, and uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be really fun. It's all made possible by MailChimp, who also make this show possible, and we thank them. Go to uh, readthissummer.com to learn more. But for now, here's Aaron with Jay Caspian Kang. Welcome, Jay Caspian Kang. Welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you. I was just looking. It's been about four and a half years since you were on this show. No way. Yeah. You've done a lot between uh, here and there. Um, you have a, a piece out in New York Times Magazine. It's called Not My Brother. That's the print title, I believe. It had a different title online. Yeah, I don't know. The online titles are always like SEO optimized and headline optimized, as they should be. So yeah, I saw the online one, which was something like what a fraternity hazing death means about Asian identity or something similar to that. Got it. Okay. Well, not, that's pretty much the theme. Yeah. You've now, you've now summarized the article <laughs> effectively. Who are you writing and doing stories for right now? Well, I have two jobs. The first is uh, I am a correspondent on Vice News Tonight on HBO, and that's like sort of my day job, I guess. I go to the office when I'm not traveling. And then I'm, I think the title is like writer at large for the New York Times Magazine, and the difference between, <laughs> I don't know if I'm supposed to say this or not, but the difference between being the writer at large and being like a contract writer is essentially that you get an email address. And so, <laughs> and so <laughs> I asked the managing editor, I was like, oh, thank you. They're like, congratulations. I was like, what, what happens? And they're like, you have an email address, which, you know, I think is actually very helpful journalistically to have, but I think I've used it like three times. So you cover, I think your official title at Vice News tonight is you're the uh, civil rights reporter? I mean, I think that was when I got hired, but we've all sort of branched out into different things. I think that if there is a large protest or something like that, that generally I would go. But yeah. like, I think that we, since it's a nightly news show and there's so much volume that needs to be met, I think that staying on a specific beat is pretty difficult, especially yeah. given that like, you know, things change every day now. So... Uh, sometimes they just need you to go and like stand in front of something. And so I don't feel like I'm quite on a beat in a way, but I don't know. Maybe I am. I've never done that before. And this is at least the second piece that you've done for Times Magazine that delved pretty deeply into Asian American identity. Yeah. 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 The um, first one was like, I guess it was around the time that we talked last, right? Like it was, maybe it, it was a little out? afterwards. I feel like maybe it hadn't come out yet. Yeah, that was like four years ago, so maybe it had, yeah. was after. And um, that was about a that that was a piece you did about a school shooting in Oakland, California. Yeah, yeah, it was like a nursing school that was pretty like uh, predatory in terms of like taking recent immigrants and sort of telling them that they can get their nursing degree really quickly. Their preparation for like whatever exams in California for nursing was pretty shoddy. They just it was an exploitative school, and so a guy was a student at that school, Korean guy, and he walked in and after some dispute about money, he walked in and like executed a bunch of people in the classroom. Amongst the writers that I've talked to for this show who are people of color, a lot of them have a spouse like, eh, that's actually not what I want to write about. I don't have like a strong interest in writing about 
the racial identity that is my own. And it seems like something that you gravitate towards. What attracted you to both of those stories? Well, I, you know, I think that like part of it is because like I didn't come up as a journalist. I came up as a fiction writer. And mm. although it's very cliche to say, like when you're a fiction writer, you really do feel like you can only be compelled by telling like, you know, true stories. And a lot of those generate within yourself, obviously. Yeah. And so I think when I was in the MFA program at some point, I started out trying to write things that were much more like kind of like John Cheevery and that they were like about... Uh, misery and wasp sub- dinner parties. <laughs> yeah, like wasp misery in suburbia but then I just found out like somewhere along the line that I was like basically just writing the same shit but then the characters were like kind of raceless you know it's not that they were white they were just like kind of like ciphers for something and that I was for whatever reason I was very young at the time I think I was 23 I wasn't really embracing the fact that these are clearly characters who had grown up in an Asian household so that was like the first six years, I think, of my writing career that it took for me to finish that novel. And so it's I don't really come at things from a standpoint, I think, that someone who came up as a reporter would, in which they would be like, okay, I'm going to excise myself from this, and I'm going to tell this story, and it's very important for me not to leak into this. And for me, growing up, the point of writing was always just to like throw myself into whatever I wrote. And so I think that's probably why, because like it feels still vaguely weird and almost like dishonest for me not to just you know at some point being very open about the fact that this is also about me but look I'm not saying that that's a good thing necessarily I think there's a lot of journalists who would say that's actually a very bad thing but I've not been able to figure out how to like write in a different way and because I did grow up Asian because I am Korean that I think that's probably why I end up in those stories sometimes I feel a bit embarrassed by it but like it's now seven years in and I, I, it's well, just like well I mean to do. this story this most recent story which is about a Asian American fraternity at uh, Baruch University and a student who was killed in a hazing ritual yeah in um, Pennsylvania I'm wondering for you When you're pitching that story, are you saying, I'm going to tell the story of this hazing ritual as a window into what it's like to be uh, an Asian American teenager in America right now? Or is that something that comes later after you've done the reporting? Well, I mean, this was an assignment. So. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I don't have any great backstory on why it yeah. like inspired me when I saw like a little slug of it in like Yahoo News or something like that. But it was an assignment. But I think that the reason why, you know, I've now worked at the Times Magazine, I think for like seven years now. So they have a general sense of what I, would interest me and what I would do. So, um are you on the like Asian American beat? Like, if there's a story about Asian Americans, <laughs> is it like? Probably. Do you have first like probably. a first look deal? The only thing that I would say is that if someone else did it, unless it was like you know somebody who I am friends with, like yeah. Adrian or Chen or like uh, Wesley Yang or something, that I would probably be a little angry. <laughs> I'd be like, "Why didn't you?" I was like, "I thought I had first dibs on that." But um, I feel like you guys are like forming like a like trash collection mafia. It's like we take we take all the Asian stories yeah, around yeah. these pots. Adrian doesn't write so many of them, but yeah, somewhere between Wesley and I t- tend to write very similar topics. Um, going back to the story, um, it was assigned to me. I think that they probably assigned it to me because they thought that I could do something that was a little bit more thoughtful because even when they assigned it to me, this thing had happened two years ago, so it wasn't like it was news. But the trial was just starting, and so they were just like, why don't you go out and check it out? And so 
I did. I went to all the trial stuff, and I think that it wasn't until I started talking to people in that community of kids in Queens who like grow up, they go to school in Bayside or Flushing. Their schools are mostly Asian. They take the SHSAT, which is a test to get into New York City's magnet schools. And from there, they go to like Stuyvesant or Bronx Science, which are also like predominantly Asian now. And then they go off to, if they do well, they go off to like an Ivy League school or Stanford or Berkeley or something. And if they don't do so well, then they go to like Baruch, you know, like this kid. So I think that when I started talking to people in that community. Um, the show is sponsored by Baruch College. <laughs> just, <laughs> well, just kidding. Just <laughs> not doing well at Bronx Science is really not that bad in yeah. life, you know. Um, I think that uh, they, the people that I talked to in that community ended up sort of convincing me that there is something more that I could do about growing up in this bubble and even within growing up in this bubble where you don't really know much of your history where it's like uh, why do kids always feel the need to construct an identity when they go to college like a racial identity when they go to college all those things like are things that happen at some varying degree in my own life like I went to college in Maine and there are probably like 15 Korean kids at the school and you know they all hung out together and I met them my first week in college, and I was this like arrogant kid from North Carolina, and I was like, I don't want to spend my entire four years just hanging out, and you know, they seem very unhappy. They're in the middle of fucking Maine, like you know, like, <laughs> like everyone's unhappy. I was like, I, I kind of don't want it. So then I wouldn't hang, I didn't hang out with them, and you know, they got pretty pissed about it. And uh, at some point, we were playing basketball, like intramural basketball, and I was playing with my roommates, and we were playing against them, the Korean American Students Association. They were pretty drunk at the time and they like beat the cr you know like they like threw the ball at my head and like threw me against the wall and were like trying to beat me up and I was like what the fuck are you guys doing something that I hadn't really experienced before and then they come back and they say like look we feel like you're really like disrespectful and like you violated the norms of like whatever Korean American Student Association culture this is and also like we think you're an asshole and I was like okay I can I'm probably an asshole but like I don't even understand what you guys are talking about because I had grown up in like North Carolina I wasn't used to this sort of society and so I think that moment actually when I thought back on it it sort of was really interesting to me that like in within this story like it seemed like there are still these violent rituals that are going on and that at the heart of it was some sort of like normalization of what this culture was going to be like these are the rules of the culture. Like, this is the history of the culture. This is why you should take pride in the culture. That was all a real surprise. I mean, I, I grew up in Berkeley. Yeah. And so I was aware of Asian American fraternities, but I had no conception that there was this kind of like quasi academic studying, like kind of um, rallying element of like people learning about these historical injustices and stuff that that was part of like that's not a part of most fraternity life in America I think it's part of most cultural fraternity life but I yes I think the vast majority of fraternities they don't do that but I yeah. think that like uh, I, as, you know even since the article has come out you know people from black fraternities have yep. reached out uh, a lot of people from Asian fraternities have reached out and they've all said yeah this is like pretty like a lot of this resonates with me like because the cultural education part and also like sort of the strictness and the occasional violence with which that history is taught feels very familiar. So I think cultural fraternities are are like that. But no, I don't I don't know. I didn't rush a frat, so I have no idea. But I would think that the majority of like fraternities 
Like just plain white fraternities mostly don't have that culture. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a word from our sponsor, Blinkist. If you listen to this show, you probably love reading and you probably don't have enough time to read everything you're interested in. Enter the Blinkist app. They have over 2,000 best-selling nonfiction books transformed into powerful packs you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. Learn essential ideas from the best books in your field, also on subjects you never knew you loved, like productivity, business, science. With Blinkist, you can feast your mind on key ideas from nonfiction books like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, The 4-Hour Workweek, shouts to Tim Ferriss. Check out his long-form podcast. All on your way home, you're taking it in, 15 minutes apiece, more knowledge in less time. Not to mention, their team is constantly adding new titles, and the app was chosen in Google and Apple's Best of Selection for two years, so you know it's only going to get better. Uh, right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash longform, and you'll get a free trial or three months off your yearly plan when you join today. Again, that's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash longform. You'll get a free trial, three months off your yearly plan, and support the show. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash longform. You'll get a free trial or three months off your yearly plan. And either way, you'll be supporting the show. Thank you, Blinkist. Here is Jay Caspian Kang. So when you're um, sort of combining your 23-year-old job and your 30-plus job in fiction and nonfiction in a story like this, um, there's a reporting component where you're talking to the families of these students who are on trial and sort of understanding where they came from and the kind of lives they live. And then there's a secondary component that is telling the larger story of Asian American identity in America, a personal story about yourself, and those two things have to fuse together. How do you approach that other part, that personal part, where you're not asking someone else and you're not looking for quotes? And <laughs> I just write it out. This one came in at like 7,500 words. And I think at some point in the draft, I probably had like 4,500 words of like just a personal essay about like me going to church as a kid, you know, and how uh, like I, my family did not really go to the Korean church, but we would go like once every two months or something. And that was like, you know, I would meet other Korean kids there. And you know, I don't even know how it fit in, but I just wrote it and it was very well written. <laughs> now it's all gone. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Uh, they, uh, they, so then I just write it all out and then I send it all in and then yeah. the edit, my editor generally goes and says, okay, like this is a very interesting, nice personal essay that has nothing to do with the rest of the piece. Like, let's just cut it all out except this one paragraph, which seems to be relevant. And then I like get mad and I'm like, no, you know, like you don't understand. Like yeah. I'm trying to do this like Joan Didion thing and I just want to insert myself and have this like weird, do you remember like the John Wayne essay at the beginning where she's talking about going to the movie theater in Colorado and how the wind is sweeping through the deserts. Like, that's what this is like. And they're like, ah, no, it's really not like that. And then somewhere around like the fourth email, I give up. <laughs> and then the piece comes out and I'm like, oh, they were right, you know? But like, yeah, it, it's that process every single time. It doesn't matter what I'm, I, I can be writing like a 1500 word sports column and that process will happen, so. Shout out to Dean Robinson. I'm sorry that that happened. Okay, so, so that kind of gels with how I read a lot of your work, which is I can identify where that one leftover paragraph 
is. Yeah. So what are the qualities of the paragraph that doesn't get cut? Like, what is the stuff that does work, in your opinion, if a 7,500 <laughs> reminiscence about the Korean-American church doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think it's generally because... I think my work tends to be somewhat polemical and, like, is trying to make an argument. And so I think that when the argument can be couched within some sort of personal thing that then it gets kept. And I, you know, I have to say that it's very nice that I work at a place that allows me to try and make those like arguments. Like in this one, I feel like I make a pretty provocative argument about how Asian American identity doesn't really exist, how it's like basically just an academic idea and it's not lived within the lives of anybody who's Asian. Like, you know, you grow up, you're Korean, you're like, a minority you're not you don't have any sort of kinship with like Indian kids you know and there's no cultural sharedness where you're just like oh yeah like you know like Asia you know like <laughs> our, <laughs> our parents right yeah Anyways, I, I think if the personal can advance that argument then it's kept yeah. and it has to be pretty direct and all the stuff that's lost is the stuff that I feel like is like you know like kind of making a mood towards the point yeah and that stuff all gets cut. are you gonna do like a director's um collection at some <laughs> point that's like got all of the cut personal essays oh, no, no. I'm, I'm almost positive that i could like do like uh if i took all the personal stuff that i write that gets cut like i would have like the first volume of you know like some like seven volume proustian thing because there's so much that's cut and a lot of the anecdotes are the same, <laughs> same anecdote. <laughs> You've been trying to get the church story in every story that yeah. you could? Yeah, <laughs> mostly because I haven't done any, like, I don't know. It's like one of those, I haven't done anything in the last seven years except, like, work in journalism, you know? Yeah. And so, like, every story has to come before that because the life of a journalist is so fucking boring. Like, you don't, it always feels weird to write about because it always feels like uh, it's so insidery. And I don't know, I find that in my own work is that like uh when i'd have to interview a journalist i'm just like the stakes drop entirely. nothing nothing, nothing more burning more... than interviewing boring than interviewing journalists <laughs> who would listen to that show yeah no. <laughs> no 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 it's not that it's more like if the lives of journalists i think as a writer i think that it's very difficult for me to write about myself as a journalist because i think that like there wasn't really much going on in my head except like how to like write there's a few threads that connect that story of the school shooter to this story that I see is kind of maybe part of like a larger thing that you're writing about and thinking about. And the first and foremost one is, is loneliness, loneliness and anger and all of the emotions that loneliness provoke. Um, but there's also the idea you just espoused of, which is basically that there's no such thing as being Asian American. That's a construct. Yet the construct of Asian Americanness is very central to the article itself. Like, if there yeah. is no Asian Americanness, why is this hazing death in an Asian American frat notable? There's hazing deaths all the time. Why this one, not yeah. the other one? How how do you navigate that and, and think about that? Because you're basically the foremost chronicler of Asian American identity, which you're saying isn't a real thing. Yeah, I don't know. I I guess that it has been the a certain irony about stuff that I've been writing because I think even like when it came to something like Jeremy Lin which is like the last great massive referendum on what Asian American means like if Jeremy Lin proved anything it's that like there is probably some sort of like very ephemeral and 
connection between Asians in America, but it takes somebody like Jeremy Lin to bring it out that like, you know, like me and Japanese kid, Chinese kid can all sort of be like, oh, that's our guy, you know? Yeah. But I actually can't think of anything other than Linsanity that did that, you know? Like, it's it. And that's why it's like sort of the seminal moment, I think, in Asian American history of the past like 20 years at least, you know? Like, probably since Vincent Chin, because like that's the only thing that bonded any of us together. Like, when the World Cup happens, I don't root for China when they were playing like a European country, you know? I yeah. root for Korea and the US. Like, I don't root for, I actually just root against Japan, you know? So. I don't know. I think that that's sort of the conflict is just like, yeah, I do write about Asian American identity a lot to mostly negate the idea that it exists. And the reason why I do that is because I think, and I think I realized this a few years after college, that the way that identity is discussed within the academy, I find to be like very dishonest. You know, I don't find the conversations around Asian identity in school, like in college that are sort of encapsulated within a lot of Asian American studies courses to be particularly helpful to kids, but also I don't find it to be like true at all. You know, like I don't think that there is a Pan-Asian identity. I don't think that it really does help that there is any like insight that I have on Chinese culture. And I also don't think that when we talk about our own place in the country that we're particularly honest about it, you know? Like I think that we sometimes are a little bit too eager to say that we're that there's no discrimination against Asians or we're too quick to go into like super woke, dense Tumblr mode and like talk about systems of oppression, you know? So with each piece like this, I try and just be like, okay, let me think this through for like a month or so. And then I'm just going to put out the argument that I think and people can take it and just do whatever they want with it. I, I find your arguments very cogent. Um, but I imagine they don't start that way. Do you have your argument in mind when you start a piece like this, or do you use the writing to kind of find your logic? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's another thing my editor has been telling me, which is that like when I, I, I write this monthly column for the magazine, and the first draft I put in is like four arguments at once, and they all conflict with one another. And he's like, it's clear that you thought this through while writing it. And I'm like, yep. <laughs> and then he's like, can you write it with one argument? And I'm like, yep. And then I'll like try. Uh, so yeah, it's, I think that that again is like the novelist part where like you don't really know where you're going. And then you kind of are hoping that the propulsion of the writing itself will lead to something interesting. I find it to be a very, very inefficient way to do journalism and perhaps maybe not the most journalistically sound way because you sometimes write yourself into corners but that's why you know you have editors and stuff to sort of be like okay this doesn't make sense you feel like you're really stretching things here but uh it's like a propulsive thing I just remember I read like a George Saunders spoke at like Columbia when I was there for the MFA and he said that like a short story should feel kind of like a Neil Young song it's like kind of rattly it's not perfect but it's like kind of rattling towards some thing that itself is great that really stuck in my head the last time i talked to you you were at grantland um which you helped get off the ground your employee number low number i can't three remember three or four three or four yeah um you left grantland you were at uh editing uh the new yorker's website for a period you left that 
<laughs> Do you want to comment on that? No. I, I was just say that Nick Thompson, when I was hired, said, uh, my only worry is that you'll leave after six months. And I, that's exactly how long I lasted. I don't know how he knew that. You know, In my own head, I was like, I'll stay in here. They'll have to cart me out of this building. You know, But I don't know. He knew it somehow. I mean, they, they carted you out very fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, then you've been doing, and you've kind of been doing the pieces for the Times Magazine throughout. Yeah. And now you've been at Vice for less Over than a year. Over a year. Yeah. Yeah. My year point was like July. It's like the longest I've had a job in forever. So when you know you got the opportunity hey would you like to be involved with a tv thing a video thing what do you think yeah i I had no interest before um at all but the year before i joined the show i had been watching a lot of documentaries and some of them i thought were really good like i was watching especially like stuff like uh sort of less blank short documentaries i really found i was like wow this is really something that is a lot different than the sort of more glossy documentaries on netflix that are mostly about musicians that i generally hate like i really didn't like amy for example or like the kurt cobain one like those two i was just like okay i don't like these because they're overproduced and they're about famous people and I find a lot of it very enjoyable. Some of it I think is actually good, but I I found a certain type of them, which I knew that I could probably go contribute to, to be somewhat dissatisfying, you know? Like, so I think that I probably could think of a world in which my journalistic skills and connections I've made over seven years could get me to the point where I could work on one of these big documentaries as like a consulting writer or like a researcher or something like that. And so I realized that I just needed to learn a lot more about the actual form of making film, which I knew absolutely nothing about, and that perhaps a good way to do it would be to work on this television show that purports to make three to four minute or sometimes even 12 minute long short documentaries like every single day. Yeah. And uh, under the idea that if they're three or four minute things, you're getting a lot more reps than if you yeah, did a one yeah. feature over a couple of years. Yeah. And that like you learn and if it sucks, you're out, you know? Yeah. The part that I didn't ever think about was being in front of the camera. And I honestly, like in my own head, I thought, okay, they're hiring me to be in front of the camera. I am terrible at this, nor do I have any desire to do it. So I'll take this job and in two months, they'll realize that I should am miscast as this. And then I'll just be like a producer, you know? I mean, I don't know. I'm still waiting <laughs> to do that. And it's not because, like, me saying, oh, and, you know, like, and then I, like, became, like, Judy Garland or yeah. something like that. No, it's, like, literally, I'm still waiting for them to realize that it's very hard for me to stand in front of a camera and do anything. And so I, you know, but I don't know. I've, through that correspondent role, standing in front of the camera, you do stand with them while they're setting up shots. You talk to the producers who are awesome about, you know, how to tell a story and video and the most important thing is that I've learned that for me, the writing part of it is good in the sense that I think I know how to lay out a story generally because of my journalistic past. But like, it's so collaborative, like uh, why a piece is good or bad has almost nothing to do with me. You know, like it's like whether or not the producer put the DP in the right place and whether the DP really like had the right lens to get the look on this person's face at a protest, you know. And me writing lines around that is sort of important, I guess, but it has nothing 
close to doing whether or not that DP got the right shot because the producer put them in the right spot. Um, so learning all of that has been pretty awesome. Is that strange for you to sort of lose the auteur's role in your own work? Yeah. I would say that my job now is to basically be like the sort of uh, board or something on my own stories. You know, like I just sort of, I come up with a lot of the ideas, not all of them, but a lot of the ideas. I like generally say this is going to be the reporting plan. An AP who, her name is Jacqueline on our team. She's amazing. She like does a lot of the reporting. Rola K, who is the producer that I work with, like sets it up, you know, and then we bring whatever camera people we have on retainer. And then they sort of make it happen, you know? Like I write a script and they like cut the piece to my script. Yeah. It never really makes that much sense. Uh, The the editor (laughs) and the producer go back and make it make sense. And then I come in, I'm like, oh, that looks great. Yeah. And then we're on to the next thing. And so like, Full disclosure, one of the editors Jay works with is my wife. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the way that you describe doing a, sto- a lot of your, your stories for the Times Magazine is a pretty heavy uh, collaboration with an editor, uh, an editor who's like, no, I'm once again, no to the church story. Yeah. Um, what's that like putting together a story in video where you don't have the total freedom to just write something new or rewrite something because you're locked to what you shot on location and stuff like that? Well, there's no self in video. So it's been a pretty, it's been, I think it's been a probably diff, more difficult transition for me than it might have been for other journalists just yep. because like if I was a much more traditional journalist that it would have made more sense that I'm only there to ask a couple questions and then let like the talents of the producer, the editor, yep. and the DP take over, you know? Um, and so it's been, I, I just feel like I use a different part of my brain, you yeah. know? And sometimes I get frustrated because I think for me, the process feels lobotomized from what I would do, which was like this sort of like neurotic reflection on self through the lens of like journalism. Yeah, you can't really do that on TV <laughs> news, on a nightly news show. I'm just imagining it's like a very speech, weird, like a thought bubble coming <laughs> yeah, up, exactly. or like Vio just being like, "At this time, I was reminded," and then like it goes hazy and like yeah. there's a reenactment of me in middle school. Like you yeah. can't do it. Yeah, but I don't know. I actually have found at first it was really did bother me, and I would you know in my head I'd be like, "Oh, this is so dumb." But when you see the finished product and it's good, and when the piece is successful, yeah, I feel like much more of an emotional investment in it than I would maybe a print piece about the same subject. Yeah. And I think that it is really cool to like have some input into how that's made. And and the thing that I can't quite figure out yet and the thing that I don't have like the sharpest eye for, which I'm trying to develop, is like why is it that like certain shots, you know, are able to like generate this sort of immense emotion while others don't? How do you educate yourself in the video sphere? Um, I guess you watch enough stuff that works and it's a little bit difficult because like, you know, like I said, the stuff that really inspired me to want to do video stuff was actually these sort of less blank documentaries that are completely formless. (laughs) I love the idea of you going into the first pitch meeting at Vice Deuce Man. It's just like, I'm kind of thinking of like a less blank kind of thing. (laughs) There's a garlic festival and uh, I think we should do it about 45 minutes and we should shoot it all on film and it should have no plot and no central characters, but it should just be like weird footage. It'll be great. Um, 
TV news is interesting because it's so compressed and you have so little time to make it that there's a formula that evolves for it. And I think I know that formula now, but I don't I don't know how to like maximize it, if that makes any sense. Like I know how to go from A to B to C now, but I don't quite have the language yet to make sure that it has some sort of sense of me in it, you know? And I think the best TV correspondents can do that. Like they can sort of make it feel like their piece where like you watch somebody on 60 Minutes and you're like, oh, of course that's that person's piece. That it, not just the VO, but the way that it's shot, the way that they're shot, it like imbues part of their personality. And I haven't quite figured out how to do that myself. I think my producer has figured out how to do that for for me, but I don't know. What well, she's I felt doing. like the piece that you did—you um, did a piece for Vice News tonight about a Korean adoptee who was yeah. deported back to Korea after basically because uh, his adoption was improperly filled out. He was not a citizen. He committed a minor crime and was deported. I mean, when he was a kid, he committed some major crimes. Made some yeah, major yeah, yeah, crimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. but. Um, in terms of the you shining through, I guess the you part there felt like you had achieved a trust and intimacy with him. Uh, he was a person, who, a guarded person who had yeah, yeah, experienced yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. traumatic things in his life. And it did seem particularly like in the scenes in Korea when you visited him, like he trusted you. I'm not sure if he did or if that's just his personality. Oh, okay. I will say that the one thing that is difficult about television for me to, and the one thing that has been tough to adjust to is that when you are a print journalist, you can spend a lot of time with somebody. Like I wrote a piece about Don King and I spent two weeks with Don King, you know? You can't follow Don King around for two weeks with television cameras. You can't ask him to sit in and adjust the lights every single time that you want to talk to him. And so it ends up being much quicker turnaround you have much less time with the person and as much as you want it to be a sort of relaxed conversation between two people you're always just trying to structure it like within the a shot you asking the question the b shot them answering the question and then you move on so it's sort of hard for me to talk to subjects sometime at that level of comfort because like a lot of time I literally just sit down and we start. You did a piece um, at Standing Rock kind of in the like final days of the Standing Rock occupation as people were basically being forcibly evicted from the premises. And if that was a magazine piece, I assume you would hang around and see what happened, you know, kind of let the story tell itself. How are the stakes of that different when you're doing it as a video story and are you just like, God, I hope something happens like really quickly like right now <laughs> while the camera is on <laughs> well that's inter- i wrote a piece for vice about standing rock and i also did a video where i did two we went there twice so it's an interesting comparison because i think that with the piece that i wrote i wanted to basically say that like what is happening at standing rock the coalition that is created there which is environmentalist black lives matter activist young socialist whatever that they felt very disconnected to the rest of the national conversation that was going on at the time about the election. You know, like that these are not kids who necessarily care if Hillary Clinton wins or they're all terrified of Donald Trump, but they're not like Hillary Clinton supporters. Like they're not mainstream politics people and that we have like huge, massive disconnect has happened within the left. You can't do that in a video piece, right? Um, And so it was great to write that. 
at the same time, like Standing Rock was so visually compelling, especially in the winter when we went, just sort of the, when they're ripping it down, there's like meat and puddles everywhere. Like all the tents are trashed. There's no one left except people who are like, because they have nowhere else to go. Like those are the only people who are at Standing Rock at the end, basically. All that I think is much better in video. Like maybe I'm just not a talented enough writer to like convey all that through written scene, but like, oh, you have to see it, you know? So uh, that was the one story where I was just like, working for both mediums is really great. Uh, we're taping this on uh, a Monday. I think it'll be out in a couple days. The events in Charlottesville took place two days ago, Saturday. You've been covering protests. You wrote extended profile of the leadership of Black Lives Matter. How that was well, not the leadership, because there's no leadership. But yeah, of DeRay and Netta, yeah. You yeah. wrote an extended profile of the non-leadership of Black <laughs> Lives Matter. Yeah. Um, what have you learned? from spending the last couple of years immersed in, in the world of protest and, and, and what have you learned about what's important for journalists in that context? I, I, the one thing I will say is that I think that activists tend to be very, very charismatic and that I think that it's very easy to end up being advocates for them and that uh, I only say that because there are times when I felt like, you know, very compelled by a certain activist and I've started to like question my own bourgeois shit, you know, life in which I don't do anything to help anyone except myself. And, you know, sometimes I'm just like, yeah, you know, like, and I don't know, that that seems very normal to me, but uh, it also seems like maybe it's something that people should really watch out for if they want to just go out and start covering protests. But I think the bigger, larger thing that I've learned is that I don't think that the left is, or the sort of liberal America is going to unite under one banner in this uh, administration. Um, I think that the Women's March was like a one-off and that we'll never be able to recapture that sort of great energy in those numbers. And that basically the process with which every group, activist group for all time, including civil rights movement, would eventually splinter off and fight amongst one themselves and like start to sort of implode because of internal fighting. Social media and the internet has hypercharged that so quickly that the second you even announce any sort of coalition, it starts to fracture. And so I think that at its core is what I've seen at every single protest that I've gone to is that like somebody has said something on Twitter or in a Facebook group or in like a WhatsApp group and they're always fighting. From the perspective of a writer, um, that speed that you talked about there's already probably been a million words published about the events of Charlottesville and we're yeah. two days later. Um, it doesn't really work with the production pace of a, a monthly or even a weekly magazine. It'd yeah. be difficult. Like It would be difficult to write a story for next week's Times Magazine about Charlottesville and feel like you were going to be able to sync up with what was happening. Yeah, right? the only way would be like you would have to like have grown up there or like you're grandfather is Robert E. Lee or something like that. Been attending that Korean church there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else you would do it within a week. Yeah. So whereas for video, it can be more immediate, but I guess I wonder what you think about distance um, from these events. Like what do you feel like the pitfalls of trying to cover this stuff on a production and news cycle are? Well, 
I would say that, okay, so an example is that after I went to Standing Rock the first time, we got snowed in and we had been sleeping in a tent and I, we went back to Bismarck and we couldn't fly out for two days. And in that time- You were it, sleeping in a tent like with all the video gear and everything and yeah. everyone was in a tent? Yeah. Wow. I mean, it was fine. They had like stoves in the tent. Uh, tents are probably really it's nice. It's pretty now, nice, right? yeah. I haven't camped since like 1986. <laughs> <laughs> um, then we, so I had to go straight to Korea because the impeachment protests were happening there. Yeah. So I flew from Bismarck to LA and then flew to Korea. And so I was kind of flying in blind, you know? And so I tried to learn everything that I could in a few yep. days and then go in and try and be like smart about it. And I don't know if I succeeded or not, but like I started to realize that my job is just to stand here and talk to people. Yep and show the footage. And somebody smarter who's a producer in New York will figure out how to make it factually correct. That was a very strange experience for me though because like I'm, you know, like as a magazine journalist, like you're never in that position where you're sort of thinking my job is to bring this footage which is newsworthy. But I find that we're kind of satisfying in a surprising way. Yeah. Like I always ask them to put me on breaking news stuff. It's a little harder because I have a kid now and it's like travel is not the easiest, but it is kind of nice to remove yourself from the process and be like, I am literally here to just ask this person, like, how does this make you feel? Yeah. <laughs> and there's actually no better question to ask this person. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're doing this preamble where you're like, well, in 1876, so-and-so built this statue here. And like, you know, and you're doing this like sort of intellectually masturbatory thing. When really what anyone watching it wants to know is like, you go up to somebody like, how does this make you feel? You, they don't want you in it at all. They just want you to hold the microphone. And I've actually found that process to be really nice and like cleansing and it gets the pieces out quickly and I watch them and I'm like, huh, I'm not like, I'm not like overcome by dread and like self-loathing in this because like all I did was ask, how does this make you feel? Is there a, a, a talent to develop of being, like when I was started interviewing people for the show, people always said, um, like act like you're stupid and you don't understand yeah. anything. Ask for explanations and all of those things. When you're doing that on video, what have you learned about being dumb as an interviewer? I think that the questions are, because they have to be edited and because they have to go in front of somebody talking, that you have to be pretty concise in the way that you ask them. And you can't do the types of things that, like when you're in a magazine writer, as part of the question, you're kind of ingratiating yourself to them to let them know that you know what you're talking about and that yes. you're not an idiot, you know? You can't do that in TV, you know, because the whole preamble is, like, not necessary. Yeah, you can't be like, your research, which I've <laughs> yeah. read all of and agree with. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> your fascinating research that you published in 1982. Like, you can't do that. So you have to be much more direct. And when it is a difficult interview in which, like, it is a hostile interview, then you have to be, like, super direct and I don't know I guess the way that I've tried to figure out how to make it interesting to me where I don't feel like I'm just reading off a list of questions is that there's one question I always ask in which I am trying to like make the person really uncomfortable uh, that I think cuts to the heart of why I'm interested in this particular story so recently we did a piece that was about like uh, how after the election the Democratic Socialists of America and the Green Party have really been looking for black candidates to run 
as a way first because there is some interest among young black people within third party even though like the vast majority of the black population voted for Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders but also because they feel like the messaging from in their last campaign was really bad in terms of race you know like you have Bernie like going on all the time and being like uh this is more about economics. It's, you know, we need to stop being so obsessed with like identity politics. And so, you know, we talked to a young black person who is running for a city council here in New York, and he's running as part of the Green Party. He's also part of the Democratic Socialists of America. And we had a great conversation. And at some point, I was just like, do you feel like a, like you're a token in all of this? You know, I don't know if that's a great question or not. But I do think it's like you kind of have to ask those types of questions because it startles them into a different sort of response. And if it works, then that's like the dramatic moment of the piece. And if it doesn't work, then the person just like, you know, like, fuck this guy. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then you feel bad. Going forward, what what are the stories that interest you? What are, what are the things you're tracking? Like you had kind of this run of stories about... Asian American identity that have played out over a series of years. Um, you've spent some time in the protest world. What's the next thing for you? Yeah, I mean, look, protests, I, I think I'm less interested in now for the reasons that I said before, which is I think that, like, people are just scared, and but they're not, like, coming together to, like, make a big sort of show. So um, protests, I don't know if it's going to be the most interesting thing to cover, but I'm interested in the art world right now. <laughs> there, every interesting debate that I find myself sort of falling into is in the art world. Like I was like really fascinated with that Dana Schutz debate about her painting of Emmett Till that was uh, at the, open uh, casket the Whitney at Biennial. the Whitney Biennial. Yeah, like I just found that to be so emblematic of everything that's been happening for the past five years and this sort of like guilelessness with which both sides were approaching their arguments. You know, like Dana Schutz's response I thought was like, crazy you know she's like well i have a son and this is more about mothers and sons and you're like you can't actually think that you know yeah but then the manifesto that was like destroy this work of art it will never be sold it can never generate any dollar amount for like dana shows because it was built like i also found that to be like really fascinating in terms of i was just like destroy the work anyway so i've been the more i look into art world controversies the more like it's a great place to be horrified by both sides of an argument it's great (laughs) um and it works well for tv because you know you can show the thing and also because uh artists are like really really either good or terrible at talking about their own work and like both of those are interesting um and you're just going to keep doing magazine pieces video stuff kind of like full steam forward on all fronts yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, yeah, and like raising a kid. But I think that uh, at this point it would be very difficult to go back to just do one of them. And if I did one, it would definitely be writing. But like I, I really enjoy like working on a team in TV. It's something I've never really done. Even when I was supposed to work on a team, like an editorial team, I like was not good at it. So I feel like I'm okay now. And it's like it's been a very like – satisfying experience to like you know let go of a little bit of control and understand that like the people who are in charge of those decisions are like very talented and smart in a way that I am not so it's uh been a good process for me to go through I know that this most recent piece you published with the Times magazine resonated with a lot of Asian Americans when you talk to a younger 
college-aged um, uh, Asian-American student, say, who has read your piece and was moved by it or, you know, inspired them in some specific way, like, what do you say to someone who wants to do what you do or something in a creative field like this? You know, I used to be much more, like, I thought that I was, like, being uh, self-deprecating about it, but I just realized I was kind of being an asshole about it where I would just be, like, my career is such an accident and, like, so I don't even really know how I did it, you know? I think I said that because I, it, it was really, if I felt very uncomfortable being asked those types of questions. And so I thought it was a quick, kind of like self-deprecating way for me to answer it. But to them now, I just say like, you have to have like one really good piece and it has to be, have a lot of reporting in it and it can't be like a throwaway essay or a think piece. Like, you should just invest all of your time in finding some part of our community which is almost never covered so you can, like, literally write about almost anything. Fishing in a stocked pond. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, none of it's covered, so find anything, you know? Yeah. Anything except Jeremy Lin is fair game. Literally anything except Jeremy Lin and, like, maybe North Korea. (laughs) You know? Like, you can do any part of Asian American culture, it'll feel new, you know? And just report it out as best as you can and, like... Bring it to a place that is not going to make it into like a curiosity and don't get too caught up in this sort of thing that happens to all of us, which is this sort of like, well, who am I really writing for this for? If I publish it with the New York Times, am I really writing it for a white audience? The answer is yes, you know? Um, and you can make that choice if you would rather write it for like your own blog post or a Asian American publication. But, you know, that's the choice that you have to make. But once you have committed to writing a cultural piece for a place like the Times or the New Yorker or GQ or any of these places, you have to, like, sort of understand that you're not going to win a lot of those fights. But you can, like, try and slowly through your career, like, negotiate a lot of these compromises out to the point where, like, in five or six years, you make less of them. Thank you very much, Jay Caspian Kang. Thank you. That was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks very much to Jay Caspian Kang. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and the Atavist's own Evan Ratliff. Uh, thank you to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, who turned this around on very short notice. Uh, thank you to our associate producer, Courtney Harrell. And of course, our sponsors who make this show possible, Blinkist. Get your reading in when you can fit it in with Blinkist and MailChimp. You know who MailChimp is. You don't need to know any more about MailChimp. They're MailChimp. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.